Uh, we are continuing in our series on the book of Daniel. And if you uh, don't have a Bible, you can grab one from the, uh, one of the chair racks around you. The book of Daniel, I think, is on page 937 on the uh, chair rack Bible. And uh, we're going to get there in just a moment. We'll be in Daniel chapter 2. Australia is moving. Not sure if you're aware of that. It's moving. Did you know that? Did you know Australia is moving? It is moving. It moves 70 millimeters to the northeast every year. Uh, the continent shifts and moves, which doesn't seem like a big deal, and it's not. 70 millimeters isn't huge. But what that does mean is that since 1994, the continent has shifted five feet to the northeast. Again, not a huge deal. I doubt that anyone on the continent of Australia has uh, really noticed that, except for the fact that 1994 was also the last time GPS was updated in Australia. Now it becomes important. <laughs> because if you are trying to work driverless tractors on your farm or get driverless cars on your roads or drones that deliver products to your home, five feet could make a pretty big difference if they're working off coordinates that no longer match up with the land. I say that to say this, we live in a world that's constantly shifting and moving. And the question is, how do you maintain your direction? How do you maintain your coordinates in a world that is shifting on you? In our current series, we're asking this question. How do you follow God in a culture when no one else does? How do you stay faithful to God in a continually faithless culture? You and I live in an increasingly secular culture where more and more God takes a back seat to individuals and to intellect. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus, then you have the challenge of how do you follow him in the midst of a culture that's actively rejecting him. We're learning how to do this by looking at the book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel was a man who lived about 2,500 years ago, and he too lived in a culture that did not believe and did not follow God. Yet, Daniel and his three friends who we met last week successfully followed God in the midst of this world, and they provide an important example to us on how we can do the same. Last week, we learned about how Daniel protected his faith and his identity in the midst of a hostile culture. And if you didn't hear that message, I encourage you to go back and look at how they did that. But this week, we take another look at an important challenge, and that's this. Here's the question I want you to consider this week. How do you share your faith in God with a culture that doesn't believe in God or feel like they need him at all? I'm guessing that you already feel you live in that kind of existing culture. A Pew Research Center in 2017 in a survey found that 56% of Americans believe you can live a good life and be a moral part person without a belief in God. And this points to the reality that's now taking place in our culture that people uh, no longer believe they need, they don't want God in their lives as maybe they once did. And yet Jesus, if you're a Christ follower, has said, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. So how do you go and share Jesus 
in a world that isn't interested. Or, let's take it a step further, in a world that is even hostile at times to you sharing about him. Think about your family members who this morning are any place other than sitting in a church. And how do you share God? How can you make a difference in their lives where they don't see any need for it, no desire for it? If it's not family members, I imagine you have friends, or co-workers, or students at your school that would say they're not sitting in a church on a Sunday morning and they don't see any reason why they would. And yet God has called us to bring this message to a world that increasingly says no thank you, increasingly isn't interested, maybe is even hostile. How do you bring God into that situation? Daniel was certainly living in a situation even more hostile than ours. He lived under a hostile king that was not just not interested, he wanted to steal and take away Daniel's faith. Wanted to change his identity, his language, his training, so that Daniel would worship the gods of his country. But yet Daniel did. He influenced a leader of his country, a leader that had no interest in following God. How did he do it? How Daniel did that influenced a leader in a world that mocked and scolded and even killed people for their belief in God. The answer to that question can help us understand how we are also able to bring God to a culture, to family members, to friends, to colleagues who seem not to be interested at all in him. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 2 if you've not done so already. I want to run through the, a little bit of the story for you and then I want to talk about just two points of how, what are important for us in, um, in being able to do this in the world that we live in. First, you need to understand that the king is in a crisis. Again, 2,500 years back, King Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel 2.1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Pause there for a second. Here's what's going on. Uh, some of you have had dreams that keep you up at night, and when you do, maybe you just commit to not e eating Mexican after 9 o'clock. That's not this kind of dream. This is a dream and a message that he knew had been given to him. It was about the future, but he didn't know what it meant. Now, if you're an individual and you get a vision or a dream and you know that there's meaning attached to it, it's important to you. I mean, the consequences could be life or death. But for a king, there's even more on the line. If you feel like you've been given a vision or a dream and you're a king, well, your country could be at stake. Could be the difference between being successful or being captured and in captivity and living as slaves and being killed. So Nebuchadnezzar has a lot on the line and he wants to find out what is the meaning of the dream that he has been given. So here's what he does. He's got all these people around him that he basically pays to give interpretations of dreams. They're enchanters, they're magicians, they're practices in, in, in dark arts and things like that. And so here's what he does. Verse 2. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, 
and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show you the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretations, interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show you its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time because you see that the word for me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupting words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. King Nebuchadnezzar is a shrewd man. He understands what's going on. Here's what his suspicion is. I don't think you guys know what you're talking about. You guys tell me all these things, but I think you could be just making them up. So here's the test. You're going to tell me what I dreamed and the interpretation. Because if you're so great and so powerful and you can interpret things, then you should be able to tell me the dream too. And if you can't tell me the dream, then I don't believe you can tell me the interpretation. He's shrewd. He's wise. And he puts that test out there. Now, not only does King Nebuchadnezzar have a problem, but these magicians have a problem. And they say to him in verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, there's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. So he can't do it. Your request is unreasonable. It's impossible. King says, well, the sentence is firm. Can't do it. You're all going to be killed. Because what good are you? Well, Daniel and his three friends that we met last week, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, are a part of this court of educated people and enchanters and the king's advisors. And he gets word. It says, hey, we're all going to be killed because we can't tell the king his dream and the interpretation. Well, Daniel says, well, get me an appointment with the king. And then he goes back to his friends. Pick it up in verse 17. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give you thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me 
what we asked of you. For you made known to us the king's matter. Daniel goes with his friends and he prays and he asks God, God, show us the dream and the interpretation. And God does. God showed Daniel what the king saw. It was a picture of a statue uh, that he saw. And he saw this statue and he went and told the king, this is what you dreamed. You dreamed of a statue and the statue had a head of gold and also had a chest of silver and then had bronze around the waist and then it had legs of iron and feet made of iron and clay and then you saw a stone and this is what the king dreamt about. And King Nebuchadnezzar said, yes, that was my dream. And then Daniel goes on to tell him the interpretation of the dream and what it meant. And then after he tells him the dream and the interpretation, Daniel heard words out of the king's mouth that I'm guessing he never expected to hear out of King Nebuchadnezzar's mouth in chapter 2, verse 47. The king answered and said to Daniel, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings, and revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. You understand what happened in a very short amount of time? In a very short amount of time, you went from a king who is killing people because they won't tell his dream, and, and this is a king that obviously does not believe in, in, in Daniel's God, to a king just a couple days later now saying, well, your God is God of gods. And your God is God over all kings. And I want to know, how does that happen? Because how do you live in a culture that does not care about God and come to a place where someone who would kill people for not believing the way he believes to all of a sudden recognizing your God is God of gods. Because if that can happen for Daniel in Babylon under extreme persecution, I think it can happen in your workplace. I think it can happen in your family. I think it can happen in your school. Where you would say, no way those words will ever be uttered in my school. And yet Daniel in Babylon with Nebuchadnezzar as king, with his life on the line, goes from a man ready to take his life to a man saying, your God is God of gods. And I want to know why. How does that happen? At least two things this morning that Daniel had that we have as well that are important when you're trying to share God in a world that is not interested in God. Two things that allowed him to influence the king in his moment of crisis and there are two things which are available to you as well. And you have the opportunity to make God known to a world that does not believe nor has a need for him. And here they are. The first one is this. One, it's simple. Be present. Be present. That sounds simple. That almost sounds like, okay, move on. What's the next point? Got that one. Hold on. Let's pause there for a moment. Proximity matters. Daniel was close enough to the king to make a difference in his life. Daniel could not have shared God with the king from a distance. With whom are you present that does not follow God? 
Whom are you living life with and beside that does not yet believe? Are you close enough to people who when they are in a crisis, they could come to you? Somebody has said that it's in the times of tragedy and transition that people are most open to hearing about God. But will there be someone in their life during those times to tell them about God? So Nebuchadnezzar is in a time of crisis. I've got a dream and I can't interpret it. And none of the people around me who are supposed to interpret it can do it. Where can I go? Well, there's Daniel. And he's close enough to the king that he can speak into his life. And there'll be people in your life, friends, family, colleagues, neighbors, workers, who will no doubt hit a time of tragedy. Something happens that they didn't see coming. They got a diagnosis that they didn't see coming. They lost their job suddenly. Their children made decisions that they don't, didn't expect or didn't see coming. They're going through transitions. They were full nests. Now they're empty nests. Uh, they're going from high school to college or college to the, to the work world. And they're going through transition. And in those times of tragedy and in those times of transitions, they may hit a place where they have questions and they hit a time of crisis. And will there be someone in their life who knows God, who is close enough to speak hope and to speak truth in those places in their life. Because here's the truth, here's the reality. Witness requires witness. Witness requires witness. Uh, I think sometimes our witness for God is hindered simply because we don't have any witness with others. That our witness for God in this world is hindered because we're not with other people. You can't share hope with people you're not near. You have to be in proximity to people in order to tell them about God. It's the people you are in proximity to that you have the opportunity to tell about God. In the first century, the gospel spread through people being near people. There was no social media. There were no televisions. There were no broadcasts. It spread through people being near people. Paul went to bring the gospel to cities, but then once some people in that city were reached, he, this, for him, the city was reached and he moved on. Why? Because everybody heard? No, but because the antidote was there and it would spread through the people like yeast through dough. See, in that time, privacy was much less a reality in the first century. Privacy wasn't the way we think of it today. Even in the, think of it this way, this is the reality. Even the most intimate moments between a husband and a wife in the first century often had a servant present. So anything that was going on in the life of a person was known by other people around. So if you acted and lived in a certain way, people were close enough to hear about it. And to question you about it. People were with you. So if you honored God. And if you worshiped God. And if you made decisions in your life. That, that, that caused you to live a certain way. People knew about it. People close to you knew about it. So their witness was a witness. Is it possible that our love. Maybe worship of privacy in our world stunts the spread of the gospel? Is it possible we have stunted the spread of the gospel because of our, our, our love of our privacy? I mean, think about it. In the 21st century, you don't have to be around anyone if you don't want to be. I mean, you can get your groceries delivered to your house. 
You can get all your things you want to buy delivered to your house. You might get a job that works from home. You never have to get out of your pajamas. Thank you for doing so this morning, though, if that's you. But I mean, you could. You could completely isolate and insulate yourself. And do we not, do we forget or do we not think theologically sometimes about that and say that our withness has then hindered our witness because we've become so private that nobody can see our life, that nobody can see when we worship God, that nobody can see what's important to us. And so they don't know. And so they go through a crisis and they think, well, you're not going to be any help. I don't even know you or know about you. But Daniel was close enough to the king that he could make a difference and influence his life. Now look, it wasn't his choice to be in Babylon. He was taken, he was sent by God, but he was taken by a king. It wasn't his choice to be around King Nebuchadnezzar, I understand that. But you have people in your life that are in proximity to you that's not your choice to be around them. And maybe you think it's an accident, but I think it's providence. You may have chosen the house that you will live in. may have chosen the apartment that you live in. But you did not choose your neighbors. You did not choose who lives in that apartment above you or that apartment below you. You did not choose who lives on the right or the left. You don't get that, make that choice. So you are in proximity to people regardless of your choice. You may have chosen your job, but you did not choose your coworkers. You did not choose your colleagues. You may or may not have chosen your school, but you did not choose the students in the desks beside you. You are in proximity to them. God has placed you there. You didn't have the choice. You didn't choose them, but God has put you there. You didn't choose the family you were born into. But God has placed you there. And you are in proximity to them. But then maybe, then maybe we insulate ourselves and we don't have a lot of relationships, maybe with people that don't know Jesus. If you've been following God a long time, this can sometimes happen and you don't even realize it. I had somebody challenge me on this recently. They said, uh, write down the names, you go through your text messages. And write down the names of everyone that you're in relationship with that doesn't know Jesus, that you're close enough to them that it wouldn't be weird to just say, hey, let's go grab lunch. Uh, Who are the people in your life that don't know Jesus that are close enough to you that they can observe your life, they can see what you're doing, so that when they go through a crisis, they can come and have a conversation with you and it wouldn't be weird. My list was surprisingly short. I don't know about your list. If you made a list of those names of people who are close enough to you that they can have a conversation with you about God, they're with you. Withness is important. Be present is important. Second point is this, not just be present. Then you have an opportunity and a responsibility. Point to God. Point to God. When you're with people and you're present with people, that's one thing. But Daniel didn't just, he wasn't just with Nebuchadnezzar. He pointed to God. You remember what the magician said? Verse 10, there's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. Well, actually, Daniel starts out with a similar response when he comes into King Nebuchadnezzar's presence. He starts out in verse 27. He says this. 
He says, Daniel answered the king and said, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery the king has asked. I imagine that that Nebuchadnezzar, at that moment, Nebuchadnezzar's looking at his, you know, first lieutenant going, why did you bring this guy in here? He's no different than the rest of them. No wise man can do what the king asks. But then look at verse 28. These are the important words that more than anything, if you walk out with nothing else this morning, I want you to walk out with these words. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. There's no man on earth that could do what you are saying, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. That's the power. He's present. He has proximity. And then when a crisis comes, he doesn't point to himself. He doesn't have to have all the answers. He says, look, what you're looking for, no man can give it to you. But there is a God in heaven and he can give you what you're looking for. You're right. All the answers are not here on earth. Ultimate meaning cannot be found here. People let us down. Your possessions will fade. But there is a God in heaven who can give you the meaning you're looking for. There is a God in heaven. Your purpose in that moment is to point to God. See, the truth is you and I are inadequate to the task God has called us to. He has put you in a position that you don't have the resources to carry out because he expects you to rely on him. See, that was the whole message of the exile. God's people had forgotten that they're supposed to rely on him, but Daniel gets it. Daniel doesn't say, oh, I'll figure it out. Let me, let me just sit down. I've got these gifts and skills that God has given me. I'll figure this dream out in this interpretation. He says, no, 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 no. We're going to go to God and I'm going to pray and God in heaven is going to reveal this to us. There is a God in heaven who can reveal it to us. You and I are inadequate to the task that he calls us to. Daniel knows that he's just an instrument that the holy God of the universe can play and make beautiful music if he chooses, but without the breath of God flowing through him, he's just a piece of metal. So are you and I. We need the breath of God to flow through us. It's not our answers. It's not our intellect. It's not what we say that's going to make a difference. It's not even just our presence that's going to make a difference. It's to point to God. The gospel, one man has said, is simply one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. You and I have simply found an answer or the answer has found us and we're just telling other people about it. There is a God in heaven. So you don't have to have all the answers. All you need to do, all you need to know is just three things. When you're in proximity with people, you don't have to have all the answers. You just need to know three stories. You need to remember three stories. You need to know God's story. You need to know the Jesus story. And you need to know your story. You need to know the God story. The big picture, God created, people sinned, God redeemed, Jesus came. God is making new, God will recreate. This is the whole big picture that we're in the midst of. God created, it's messed up. People sin. God redeemed. He's been working a plan of redemption. One day he will recreate. You need to know the Jesus story. Easiest way for me with the Jesus story is I got three pictures I keep in my mind. Manger, cross, and empty tomb. 
There's a lot more to it than that, but that'll get you there. Manger cross and empty tomb. You need to know the Jesus story, that God came to earth, that God came and took on flesh and he walked and lived among us, God with us, and he went to a cross and gave his life so that we might have forgiveness of sins. Because of our sins, he gave his life and then he came out of a tomb and he didn't stay dead and he conquered death through life and he lives again and you can live when you put your faith in him. You need to know the Jesus story. Manger cross and empty tomb. Then you need to know your story. Here's what God did in my life. Here's how he's touched and changed my family. Here's the times he's come through for us. Here's what it means for us to follow Jesus. Here's where I get meaning. Here's, here's how God has spoken into my life. You don't have to have all the answers. You just need to know those three stories. God's story, the Jesus story, and your story. Share those. Be ready to share those when you're in proximity to people who are looking for answers. See, there's not a man on earth, but there is a God in heaven. Recognize the limits of your power and the unlimited power of God. There are things that as mere humans we cannot do, but we have access to a God that there is nothing impossible for. You might say to your friend, I don't know why you're experiencing this pain but there is a God in heaven who will meet you and walk with you and not abandon you in your time of pain. I can't provide meaning for your life for what you're looking for, but there is a God in heaven who created you and loves you and can show you why he put you on this earth. I can't do anything about the guilt and the shame that you feel, but there is a God in heaven who can cleanse you and make you new. I can't take care of your sin, but there is a God in heaven that if you will put your faith and your trust in him, that he will forgive you and give you new life. I can't heal you, but there is a God in heaven who heals, and I can pray for you, and we can go to him. I can't change your past, but there is a God in heaven who can redeem your past and says that if you will put your faith and trust in him, that all things will work together for good. I don't have all the answers and no one else on this earth does, but there is a God in heaven. And perhaps this morning you're sitting here and you're not the Christian who needs to hear about telling this to others. Maybe God has brought you here this morning because you have looked everywhere else for answers. And this morning you need to know that there is a God in heaven who has been looking for you and is waiting for you to turn to him. Maybe this morning, it's not about you telling someone else. Maybe this morning, you just need to be reminded that you have looked everywhere else. You have looked in the books on the shelf. You have looked, searched the web pages. You have talked to other people and you have not found the answers to your questions in times of crisis and tragedy. And this morning, that God brought you here so you would know there is a God in heaven that you can go to and he has the answers that you're looking for. And he has what you've been looking for in others and what you've been looking for in relationships and what you've been looking for from the people of this world that you have not been able to find. And maybe that's because you'll never find it there. But there's a God in heaven who will provide what you're looking for, who has the answers you're looking for, who has the love that you're looking for. There is a God in heaven. Maybe this morning you're here because God needs you to hear that. Be present and point to God. 
Be in proximity to people and point them to God. That's your job. That's what Daniel did. And so a king says, your God is the God of gods. And it can happen in your school. It can happen in your workplace. It can happen in your family. It can happen in your home. And if you be present and point people to God, play your piece of music, that God can work through you. You and I have one advantage over Daniel. We have the advantage of time. We can look back in history where Daniel was looking forward. And so we see this prophecy that was given. We see this prophecy of this statue that was given. And he interprets, he not only gives them the statue, but then Daniel gives him the interpretation of the statue. So the gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron and clay, the iron and the clay. And right in the beginning, he does tell him, look, the gold head, that's you, Nebuchadnezzar. That's Babylon. That's you. That's the gold head in this image. He said the head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and clay. As you looked, the stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But that stone struck the image, became a great mountain, and filled the whole earth. See, we have the advantage of time. Daniel could only see, at that point, Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And he said, that's you. And actually for Nebuchadnezzar, this wasn't that bad of a prophecy. Because it meant it would be way down the road before this kingdom is smashed and, and he's the head of gold. And, and, and it wasn't that bad of a prophecy for him in the short term. But in the long term, he said, look, another kingdom's coming. And we can look back in history and see that that was the Medes and the Persians. And then after that, another kingdom's coming. And we can look at Alexander the Great and the Greece and see that that kingdom came. And then he said, another kingdom's coming. It'll be a kingdom of iron. And iron are mixed with clay. And that was the Romans. And the Romans were a major kingdom, but it was also a divided kingdom. East and West Roman Empire. And there was division among, amidst it. And he said, in that last kingdom, there'll be a stone cut from a mountain, not by human hands, that will come and smash the feet and the gold, the silver, the bronze will fall to pieces. And this stone will grow into a mighty mountain and a kingdom that will not end. And we can look back and we can say that in the midst of the Roman Empire, in the midst of the Pax Romana, in the midst of all this power, when everyone was paying attention to the Caesars in Rome, and only a few shepherds and magi were paying attention to a little stable and a manger in Bethlehem where a stone would come into the world that would smash all the other kingdoms. And it wouldn't come like a war machine, like Alexander the Great or Hannibal or the Caesars. It would come as a baby in a manger and it would grow into a kingdom that would not end. And this is what happened. And Daniel was looking forward, but we can look back and see what God has done. 
And there is a God in heaven that interprets and reveals visions and dreams. Jesus in Luke chapter 20. Throughout the scriptures, the Messiah is often referred to as a stone. Jesus himself refers to it in Luke chapter 20, verse 17. He says, but he looked directly at them and said, what then is that? What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected became the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus is saying, I am the stone that Daniel spoke about. And his kingdom is one that lives forever. And in Jesus' day, people said, where is this kingdom? Where's your kingdom? And Jesus says, it's in the midst of you. It's like a mustard seed. It's this tiny seed, but it's going to grow into a tree that the nations will be able to come to and rest in. And just as Daniel had revealed to Nebuchadnezzar what was going to happen, we can look back and see that God has been at work throughout history. And you can trust him. Be present. Point to God. I am doubting that when you came in this morning that anyone really took note of the fire extinguishers in the room. Without looking around, do you know where they are? Some of you have been coming to this building for 20 years. You don't know where the fire extinguishers are? Well, you're no help. I can promise you they're in here. They're on the back wall. And I can also promise you that they are charged and checked regularly every year. You walk in this building, you don't notice that they're there. They are easy to miss, but they are present and they have power. Each year they're charged and checked to make sure they're ready. Very rarely does a person look for a fire extinguisher until a moment of crisis. But when it is needed, it's important that it is there, present, in proximity, and ready to fulfill its purpose. You, at times, are called to be in people's lives, to be present and in proximity and ready. When a crisis or a tragedy hits, will you be near enough that they can reach out to you and say, I don't know what to do. We're lost. And you can say, I don't know what to do either. But there's a God in heaven who we can trust him and we can go to him and he knows what to do. Just like you walk past those fire extinguishers, you may think, well, I'm in their wife. They don't even know there'll be a time. You be present. Your witness requires witness. Be there. You may be surrounded by people who say and act like they never need God, but there will come a time when their world comes to a screeching halt. That job that gave them purpose will be gone. A tragedy will occur. Someone will suddenly move away. The kids who fulfilled their lives with meaning will grow up and leave the house. The intellect and scientific reasoning will fall short of explaining why we are here and what it all means. And in those moments, you will be present. And the God who you seek out daily will give you power as you point to him. They will say, this crisis has happened in my life and there's no person on this earth that can give me an answer and you will fulfill your purpose and you will say yes. But there is a God in heaven. And your witness will give you an opportunity for witness. As our music team comes back, I want you to do this. I want you to take out your connect card that you got 
uh, in the mor- uh, this morning. Take out that Connect card and look at the back of it. Two things I want to draw your attention to as we close. One thing I want to draw your attention to and one I want to respond to God's word on this Connect card. Also grab a pen. If you didn't bring one in, hopefully there's one in a pocket uh, not too far from you. Grab the Connect card and grab a pen as we respond to God's word this morning. First, I want you to take note of this at the bottom of that sermon notes part on the back. There's something that says, pray this prayer as you decide to follow Jesus. If you're in here this morning and you're saying, you know what, that's me. I need this morning to respond and know this God of heaven. How can I know him? God has not made it difficult for you. There's a simple prayer we put on the back of that card that you can pray. It says, thank you, God, for loving me and for sending your son to die for my sins. I repent of my sins and receive Christ as my savior. And now as your child, I surrender my entire life to you. The prayer that maybe you can pray this morning or maybe there's someone in your life that God has put you in proximity with. Keep this card with you. That prayer, if you ever wonder, you know, what what to share, maybe that will be the line that God will someday allow you to pray that prayer with them. Pray that prayer and ask God to lead you. But here's what I want you to do if you're in here and you're a follower of God. You love the Lord, and this word comes to you. As the team plays, I want you to do that exercise that that friend of mine gave me. I want you to write down the names. Who are the people in your life that God has placed you in proximity to, that know you, but don't know Jesus? They're close to you, but they're far from God. They're the person that, not, not every person, the person that you could say, hey, let's go to lunch, and it wouldn't be weird. They're, they're close enough to have a conversation with. They're with you. I want you to take a moment as the team plays to just write down those names. See how long the list is. If it's a long list, wonderful, pray for them. If there's not a single name on that list, then pray. God, bring people into my life. Don't let me cut myself off and be so private about my life that I don't let people see what it is to live for you and serve you. I was surprised how short my list was, and I thought, well, I've got some work to do, some relationship building to do, and to develop and nurture some relationships that may already exist. Then I want you to take a moment just to pray for that list, pray for those people. Because I don't think you've been put in their life by accident. I think you've been providentially placed there. Maybe no one else is praying for them. Pray that when they hit that wall, wherever that is and whatever that is, that you would be the phone call they make. You would be the text that they send. They said, "I, I don't know, I don't have any answers for this. Pray that you could be that person when they're looking for answers that they come and look for you and find you. Father, Lord, help us to be a church that God is committed to you and all that you are and all that you've called us to. Lord, and one of those things you've called us to is to be a witness for you in the world that you have placed us, no matter how hard or how difficult or how uninterested that they seem to be. We still are called to make disciples and be a witness for you. So Lord, help us to do that. Help us to be present in people's lives and to point them to you. Lead us even now. In Jesus' name.